Um, if you would open up your Bibles and join me in Titus chapter 2. Um, it's page 835 in your pew Bibles, if you didn't bring a Bible, and open it up. It's a longer passage, and I want you to see the context. It's hard to do that when we only put a couple verses at a time up on the screen. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, as, as I share every week, the Bibles in front of you are a gift. We'd love for you to take home as our gift to you and bring it back so that you have God's word everywhere you go. Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not, by, um, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled and everything set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try and please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show them that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his own, eager to do what is good. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, thank you for your word this morning, and I pray that it would speak into our hearts that you would call each person in this room and, and as families, God, that we would be used as instruments of your peace and of your gospel to share your good news with the world around us. God, I pray that I'm able to do that today, that I would get out of the way of your word and that your Holy Spirit would speak through me so that we might learn what you have for us this morning. All God's people said, amen. Well, today is our final Sunday in our series, The Elephant in the Living Room. And I, I shared at the other two services, I'm really sad because at the 9.15, I usually take a nap and I'm not going to have my couch anymore. But let's one more time thank Paper Dolls in Lake Geneva and Cindy McCracken, who's at the service, for providing this wonderful living room for us. And I, I do need to, to say it is still for sale. So if you would like to buy it, I know you guys are laughing. They're willing to make a good deal for you. Um, so go talk to Cindy. <laughs> but, but we don't want to get into the whole Jesus, money changers, flipping tables thing. So we'll move on. <laughs> The, the other thing I want to thank, the other person I want to thank is, is Hannah Babiak. Um, she is a photographer, and the Babiak family are members here at St. John's. And it is their son, Nathan, who, when he was a little guy, used to carry around the elephants. So let's praise God for the gifts of everyone who's helped with this series. 
We had a number of people visiting us for the first time. I know a couple of you are visiting us here this morning as well. So to kind of give you a little bit, you're coming in at the end, and it's been a, a six-week series where we've been studying this overarching premise that we're all part of a family. No matter what your family looks like, whether they're around, whether you have a relationship or not, we're not born into this world alone, and that's actually by God's design. At the very beginning in the book of Genesis, when God created Adam, and before created Eve, it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. And this entire series, I point that out because it wouldn't be necessary if God didn't say that. Like, we wouldn't have to have a conversation about elephants in the room if God just chose for there to be one person on the planet at a time. There would be no elephants in the room. There would no, be no need to talk about who makes the decisions in a family or how to resolve conflict or reconciliation or parenting. None of it would matter if we all lived alone. And while sometimes I think about that as my kids are running crazy and amok and life is going crazy and you think, oh, maybe that wouldn't have been such a bad idea. But then I go back to Genesis chapter 2 and I read that God said it is not good for man to be, what? Alone. It's not good for man to be alone. And, and for the record, he's not just talking about those of us who are married or single. It doesn't matter what your marital status is. Every single person needs other people. It's actually the design that God has for humanity. And the reason why is because we never could have fulfilled are God-given purposes without others. At the very beginning, God gave purpose to everything, the sun and the moon and the stars and the ocean, and it all had purpose, and you have purpose, and so does your family. And God has a higher calling, a higher purpose for your family. And what I want to kind of break down today is the premise that your family and mine is actually a means to that higher calling and not so much the end. Family is a means not an end. And, and, and here's what I mean by that. I, I read this, this um, story this week that I think articulates it well. It was written by a young mother. Her name is, is Jordan Harwell. And um, she said this. She said, a couple of years ago, I was driving to my parents' house down a neighborhood street. My kids, Charlie and Haiti, were in the back seat, whining, I'm sure. And I thought, okay, I get it. I can relate. As we approached my parents, I noticed an elderly woman, probably in her 80s, walking down the street the same direction we were headed. In each arm, she touted a grocery bag, presumably from the convenience store a couple blocks back. She was noticeably exhausted, walking with a limp, pausing every few feet to catch her breath. Since we were going pretty slow, I had a good 30 seconds to make a decision. She clearly needed a ride. But I had my three and one-year-old in the back seat in the car with me. What if, what if she's dangerous? What if that's not really milk in her bag, but it's a bomb? What if she's pretending to walk with a limp, but she's really not an 80-year-old woman, but a 25-year-old man in disguise? I have kids in the car. The kid's safety is first. I passed her by. I passed an 80-year-old woman with a limp carrying two bags of groceries because of my kids. She goes on to explain that in that moment, she saw her family as an end, not a means. Her kids became her excuse 
to not love others, when God had designed her family to be a vehicle through which he could love others. Do you see the difference? See, God, God grabbed her by the neck that day, she said, and, and, and that the rest of the article, the way she writes it, she said she turned around, she pulled a U-turn, she picked up the old woman, and she was not a 25-year-old man with a bomb in his bag, and she helped the woman home and helped her carry in her groceries. And the kids asked all kinds of questions the rest of the way to Grandma and Grandpa's house, and they learned a lesson, a lesson that they never would have learned if their mother had put them first. It's a good real-life example of the fact that God did not put you on this planet for yourself. So your purpose and my purpose, and no matter what our family looks like, our family's purpose is, is the same purpose and mission as our church. And I'll have you read it because maybe you're not too familiar with it. This is our mission statement. Say it with me out loud. Love God and love others in a way that brings hope to the world. That's our mission statement. That's why St. John's exists, is to love God and love others in a way that brings hope to the world. And it's really not original. It's what Jesus has called us to do in the great commandment and the great commission. And it's what the Apostle Paul is going to teach us how to do in our scripture reading today, which comes from one of the shortest books in the Bible, the book of Titus, the letter. If you look in your Bible, it's probably like mine. It spans just over the course of about a page. Now, give you a little bit of background. Titus was written by Paul. He was a prominent leader in the first century church, and, and he wrote it to a younger leader named Titus. Titus was one of his converts, one of his disciples, one of his students, and he became a Christian under Paul, and then Paul set him apart as a leader in the church. And at the time he wrote this letter, Titus was leading in a place called Crete. Now, that was a little island off the coast of Greece, and it was a terrible place. It was horribly immoral. It was so bad that there was this guy that, that it was raised in that community. He was from that neighborhood. He was a, a prophet and a poet of their culture. And, and Paul actually quotes him in chapter 1. He says this. He said, one of Crete's own prophets said it this way, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, and Paul says, I've been there, it's true. Now, when your own people are saying that about you, like the, the guy who wrote that, he wasn't even a Christian, he wasn't even a Jew. When your own people are, are saying that, you know that these people are bad news. And Paul explains at the very beginning that the whole reason he went to, to that place to establish a church, the reason that Titus is staying there to keep the church going is, is, is a way of God using them to overcome this evil culture and set forth a people, a church, that would live in such a way that the other people in Crete would look at them and say, there's something different about you, and I want what you have. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage Titus, and he's only got three chapters to write with, and he chooses to devote... Almost an entire chapter, chapter 2, to how they can change this lying, cheating, evil, lazy culture. And it begins with the family. Because family, by the standards of God, is a means, not an end. And there's three specific ends that, that Paul is going to show us in the text. And we're going to call them so that's. Because you're going to read all of these things that he says to do. But he says to do them so that something happens. And so watch out for that. We'll start with verse 1. He says, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. 
Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Paul says this is what the older men of the family of God should look like. And I read that and I go, what older man wouldn't want to be described that way, right? Like as you get into your golden years, men... Wouldn't you want people to say that that's the way they would describe you? If, 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 you're at, if, 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 if they're at your funeral, wouldn't you want them to pick Titus chapter 2 as one of the scriptures to describe you? And ladies, you're not left out either. He continues, he says, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. And the purpose isn't just for themselves. It's, it's to be able to have an influence on the younger generations. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands. So that, we're looking for these, so that no one will malign the word of God. The older Christians and the way they live, men and women, matters because their lives not only impact the younger generation, but the first way that we learn God calls us to a higher calling in family is that his higher calling is to be a living model for the word of God. That our families are called to be a living model for the word of God. Your family is an incubator. Your marriage is a case study. Because see, when Paul wrote this letter, it wasn't part of a book in the Bible that was readily available on bookshelves everywhere. Last time I checked, I believe every family in America, every Christian family on average has three Bibles in their home. It wasn't the case then. They didn't have an app where they could look it up. They were not going to read it, which meant they needed instead to see it. And the truth is, 2,000 years have gone by and not much has changed. Anybody can read Titus today. They could get their hands on a Bible, but they probably won't, at least not until they see it in your life. And, and that's actually the way Jesus designed it to be. Because, you know, I don't know if you did memory verses, if you grew up in church and Sunday school. If you did, you probably would have done uh, John chapter 13, verse 35. Jesus said it this way. He said, everybody will know that you're my disciples if they read about it in a book. Is that how that goes? Actually, I'm misquoting it. Let's go to the next one. <laughs> I'm glad some of you are like, I don't think it says that, but if you love one another, it's not Jesus didn't say I came to this earth so that you could write about it. He said I came so that you could live it. That people are going to know my love for the world by your love for one another. The people around you are the greatest opportunity you have to share the love of God with others. And the people that are around you more than anybody else are your family. And so Paul continues in verse 6. He says, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. And everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that, remember we're looking for these, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. The second thing we learn about God's higher calling for family is God's higher calling is to be protected by living for him. To find our protection in living for God. And I, I word it that way because what family doesn't want protection for their loved ones, right? 
You got little kids, you want to protect your little kids. If you got parents, you want to protect your parents. Parents, even your adult children, you want them to be protected. There's nothing wrong with that. The question is, who do we trust to do the protecting? See, the young mother in the story at the beginning was so protective of her young children that she didn't want to risk their safety by inviting an 80-year-old woman with groceries to ride in the car. And it's a silly example, but we're all guilty of the same thing. And usually for us, it's a little bit more subtle than that. And I was given an example in my own life, because I'm learning this right alongside you. Uh, just yesterday, our, our eight-year-old son, Evan, he broke his glasses yesterday. And actually, technically, he didn't break his glasses. Our two-year-old, Sophie, broke Evan's glasses those of you who are laughing have met Sophie, obviously. They're kind of two peas in a pod, Evan and Sophie. And so anyway, we're really grateful because we went to this one place to buy his glasses, and uh, he just got glasses this year, and they told my wife, Alyssa, they said, you know, if you buy the glasses at this other place, they come with a 12-year accident protection program. And we're like, have you met Evan? <laughs> and, and if you haven't met Evan, let me show you a picture Alyssa posted on Facebook. This was right before I came home one night this week. That's Evan. And I was afraid, like, showing you that. I was afraid maybe we'd be giving some ideas to the other little boys, but instead all morning I've had little boys come up to me and go, I do that in the doorway. I've done that too. But now if that was your son, would you not get accident protection for his glasses, right? Like we know. And so we did. And, and, and they went to the store and they got new glasses and they came home and they were told when they went there that, that, that he can break them three times in 12 months and they'll replace them. I don't know if that was like a warning, like only three times, I'm not sure. Um, but my wife, Alyssa, and I, we were joking when they got home, and, and, and I forget who said it to who, but we, we said, you know, if he doesn't break them three times in the first 12 months, then at the 11th month, we should just break them and blame it on the two-year-old so that we have another pair of glasses, right? I mean, she's never going to tell anybody. Nobody's ever going to know. And we were joking, <laughs> But you see what that does? I mean, even just joking about it, just the sarcasm, it's a subtle message to ourselves and to our eight-year-old son that says to them, I don't trust God enough to provide for what I need so that when you need new glasses, that we're going to have enough to get them. And so we're going to stretch the truth. We're going to stretch our integrity in order to take hands matters into our own hands. Now, now, again, we were really just joking, of course, but anybody ever guilty? You don't have to raise your hand. Are you ever guilty of stretching your child's age when you go to the all-you-can-eat buffet? <laughs> Tell them you're seven. <laughs> Might not seem like a big deal. Just between you and your family, right? But Jesus talked about this. He actually talked about this in the Gospels. He said in Matthew 10, there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, nothing hidden that will not be made known. Like it's all going to come out in the end. And, and what I tell you in the dark, he says, speak in the light. What I whisper to you in your ear, proclaim it from the rooftops. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. The, the reason we take matters into our own hands is because we're afraid of the people around us. 
We're afraid of, of being provided for by, by, by our job, or we're being afraid of what others might think if we pick up the woman on the side of the road who has groceries. We're afraid of this world. And Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one, you see the uppercase O, the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Who is that? It's God. God's the one that can do that. And it sounds like he's threatening us, but he's not. <laughs> because Jesus continues. He says this. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. What he's saying is, is, what's the point in protecting your children and your family to such a degree that when they grow up, when your kids grow up, that they don't know what it's like to have to trust God to meet their needs? In the case of the woman with the groceries, to, to even see examples of sacrificing your time and your comfort and maybe even your safety in order to help others. See, living for him... Living for him with integrity and trust and sacrifice for others is the only way. Putting yourself out there, it's the only way you're going to learn that when you step out in faith, it's God who catches you. And we're called to live that way as a family because family is a means, not an end. Family is a means, not an end. And then last, Paul gives us one more example. It's not family, but it's close. It's, it's slavery, and, and we don't have slavery in, in, in this country, but it still happens, and, and so you can imagine this, and, and it's not condoning it, but, but you've got this, this horrible Christian culture, and, and, and there's slaves that are coming to faith in Jesus, and he says this to them. He says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, not as condoning slavery, but to try to please them. Don't talk back to them. Don't steal from them, but to show them that they can be fully trusted so that, remember those words we're looking for, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. It's very simple. The third thing that we learn is that God's higher calling for every relationship in our lives is to make Jesus look good. Every relationship in our lives. Verse 11, for the grace of God appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly possessions, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who himself gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And here's the truth. When we don't put God first in our family, when we don't allow God's purposes in our lives to be our end, what ends up happening is we end up expecting from our families something that we can only get from God. And the Bible describes that as idol worship. That sounds crazy, right? It's like I don't have a statue of my family at home, right? But idols can be anything. And, and the truth is idols are almost always good things, 
that God gave us for a good purpose, but we end up putting them in a position in our lives that they were never intended to be in. And what ends up happening is we end up crushing them under the weight of our unmet needs, and then we walk away and our needs still aren't met. And we've all done this in other ways, right? Like, how many of us have ever been guilty of buying something in order to make us feel better? Can we just have a moment of confession? And the payments outlasted the joy. (laughs) And if it isn't buying something, maybe it's eating something, right? Because you're not feeling good today, and so... It brings some temporary relief, and then you have a stomach ache, and the need still comes back. Now, there's nothing wrong with buying anything. Nothing wrong with buying things. There's nothing wrong with eating things, even things that we enjoy to eat, unless you expect those things to offer to you something that only God can give. And that's pretty benign, but you can see how the stakes are so much higher when then we do that to our families. There's nothing wrong with prioritizing our families. We should be the best family we can be. Paul gives us a chapter, an entire chapter, on how to be the best family we can possibly be. But there's also a line that's being drawn between being the family God has called us to be and idolizing our family by thinking that the perfect family is going to bring us joy that only God can bring. It will not. I've shared it before, we we idolize our marriages, right? When we think that our spouse was placed on this planet purely for our enjoyment. I've, I've shared before, nobody told Alyssa that when we got married, that her job for the rest of our lives was to make Tom DeGroote happy. And, and you laugh, but we live that way, don't we? We expect that that's what was going to happen when we got married. I'm glad Steve's kissing his wife. It's like, you really do make me happy, way to go. <laughs> <laughs> There's this author, his name's Gary Thomas, he's a pastor and an, and an author who wrote the book Sacred Marriage, and it's all based on this premise. He says, marriage in the, sa- in the eyes of God was not intended to make us happy as much as it was intended to make us holy. If you're married, your spouse and you were placed on this planet first for God's enjoyment, and your relationship with one another is meant to make you holy for God. Parents... Your kids were not placed on this planet and in your life primarily for your fulfillment. (laughs) They were placed in this world for God's. And if you put that expectation on the shoulders of your children, it will put a pressure on their shoulders that they were never intended to carry and they will never live up to all of your wants and your needs. And if you don't believe me, ask a parent of children that are a couple of steps ahead of the children that you have and they will tell you that. You'll crush them. Now, it doesn't mean you don't have expectations of your kids, but as we talked about last week, those expectations are formed by God's expectations. What God wants for our kids and not what we want because family is a means and not an end. The end, and it should sound obvious by now, is Jesus. That we would live for Jesus. That we would do good for him in his name. And and, and the truth is, and I hope you've heard this over the last six weeks, that not a single one of us are there yet, which is why God designed the family so that we would have a group of people to fight with (laughs) and to have to forgive 
and to have to walk a long life together and to have to say goodbye to our loved ones and to welcome new life into this world and to go through all of those things so that we might be more like Jesus. And I pray that that tells you and communicates to your soul an extra dose of grace so that when you fall short as a husband or a wife or a brother or a sister or a parent or a child, that when your family isn't perfect, that when your loved ones don't meet your expectations, when you don't meet your own expectations, instead of knocking yourself down over and over and over again, you can say that I believe in a God who died on the cross for every sin that I've ever committed and every one I'm going to commit, and he died on that cross for my family as well. And so I can see these struggles not as an opportunity for me to be condemned, but for me to practice the faith that Jesus has bought with his blood and his body, that I can extend forgiveness because forgiveness has been extended for me, that I can extend mercy because God has extended mercy for me, that I can extend reconciliation and grace, all good things that come to us from God. And so would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I I thank you I thank you that you have not designed our families to be the be-all, end-all. That our families are a means to your greater ends on this earth. That we would bring glory and joy to you. That we might be able to receive that joy from you. And our lives would be focused on you. And we thank you, God, for, for each relationship that you've called us into. That we are not alone. That those The people in this room, we're not alone because we're with our brothers and sisters in Christ. A family that that supersedes, that goes beyond our families of origin and the families we live with. That this is the family that we're going to be with forever. But God, you have a good purpose for our our earthly families as well, and that purpose is to, to make us holy. You give us opportunities and in the midst of our conflicts, to to extend forgiveness and to receive it so that that we might taste and see that you are good and, and live out what you've taught us, what you've given us, that we can love because you first loved us. So God, I pray that, that we wouldn't get that confused, but we would see that as, as a weight lifted off of our own shoulders and, and off the shoulders of our imperfect families that we would see our mistakes as opportunities for grace and that we would see the good things in our families as opportunities for us not to rejoice in ourselves or pat ourselves on the back as much as we can look out in the world and say, any joy, any success, any good thing that has come out of my family is a gift from God in heaven. And it's a gift that he wants to give you too. We love because he first loved us. And as we open our eyes, we remember what that love looks like as we gather around this feast table that Jesus gathered around with his disciples 2,000.